Oh, it's happening! It's on! It's on! Everything, I swear to God, friends, I swear to God that I was about to post this interview episode when I was like, mm, I don't know. Seems like there's a rumbling. Seems like there's a roiling. Seems like there's a lot of shoes that might drop. And friends, boy, howdy, has it. I'll tell you what. This is why you become a $3 Club member. Because not only have the $3 Club gotten two podcasts since Bill de Blasio went out, but they also got two podcasts since this story broke. And now uh, we have just exploded beyond where we were. Let's reset. Number one, there's a whistleblower complaint that Donald Trump uh, was using undue influence in his position as president to a foreign country. That foreign country is believed to be the Ukraine. The undue influence that he is said to have reported to have exerted is that he withheld a block of military aid for the Ukraine under the quid pro quo that the uh, Ukrainian president investigate Hunter Biden and his role in a Ukrainian gas company called Burisma. So, since then, here's what's happened. The whistleblower has been determined by the administration to not have discovered what uh, he is reporting on through way of his uh, normal course of duties. He did not hear the call firsthand. He reported it beyond his scope of responsibility, and so therefore... The administration has determined that they will not uh, that 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 they will not uh, process it like a normal whistleblower. Now the whistleblower wants to talk to Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff wants to talk to the whistleblower with the National Intelligence uh, Committee. Donald Trump has said that he is going to release the transcript that an unaltered, declassified version of the transcript will be out tomorrow. None of this, none of this is bigger news than old Nance the Chance rolling the dice because she, according to NBC News, the headline we read is Pelosi to announce formal impeachment inquiry of Trump. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi writes Adam Edelman who for months resisted efforts to launch impeachment proceeding against Donald Trump, will announce later Tuesday that she now backs a formal inquiry, according to two Democratic sources close to her. Pelosi's change of heart comes as dozens of Democrats, now totaling more than two-thirds of the caucus, have come out in support of an impeachment inquiry in the wake of reports that Trump may have withheld aid to Ukraine to pressure officials there to investigate the son of political rival Joe Biden. It's on. This is happening. Folks, this is a call the banners moment. I have been on the record on this uh, uh, show talking about a few things when it comes to impeachment. Number one, it really depends on momentum. There's a reason why I thought that, that the Mueller thing was dead. And the Mueller thing is dead, right? Because now we're focusing on another way to impeach Trump. The Mueller thing died because you couldn't get a fire going immediately. I think that's the lesson that the Democrats took from this, that they are going to back impeachment because if they don't do it now, it won't happen. Now, on the other hand, they don't know what's in this transcript, or at least we, we are assuming that they don't. If this transcript comes out tomorrow and it is not something, if, if Trump is not publishing his own death warrant, well then we have a little bit of a different story, right? We, we are in a situation where, uh, you know, we, we, uh, the, the Democrats might look capricious. No matter what, no matter what, the battle lines now are drawn. The Democrats are coming for the crown. This is on. It is happening. What is yet to be understood is whether or not the Democrats uh, uh, can peel off. Like they right now, they have the votes that they're going to be able to put a scarlet letter on Donald Trump. They're going to be able to say, you have been impeached. 
When people look in their history books, which presidents have been impeached, boom, your name's going to be there. But will he get removed? Right now, it's unlikely. Like, uh, this is all happening as I record this. I literally do not know. Like, I'll I'll go to, I'm I'm still live here on twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. Uh... Biden has now called for impeachment. The full whistleblower complaint is apparently rumored to leak. Uh, And uh, Pelosi, after meeting with the Democratic uh, caucus at four, will speak at five. But the impeachment inquiry looks like it is on. But we don't know. I mean, like right now, again, Here's the best case scenario if you're a Democrat. Here's the worst case scenario if you're a Democrat. Best case scenario is this transcript looks awful. There's still more. The whistleblower has more evidence that they want to share. This continues to spiral into an international scandal. And now some of the squirmish Republicans, like the Mitt Romneys of the world, that have not fallen and always fallen in line with Trump, are now like, hey, um, you know, if uh, 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 this guy's got to go, right? That's the best case scenario. The best case scenario is that this continues to become uglier and uglier. And and, And the Republicans start to abandon the president. What the worst case scenario is is that congratulations. The Democrats get what they've wanted. They get to put the they get to put the 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 the, the goat horns on uh Donald Trump. They get to to make fun of him for being an impeached president. They get to point to the lawlessness that we have to run against somebody that has been impeached for for misconduct. And then Trump becomes even more uh, uh, popular within his own party. The Democrats are looked at as somebody that legitimizes what Donald Trump has been saying, that this is a witch hunt. They're trying to get me out of office by any means necessary, and the goalposts keep moving as to why that should happen. First it was Mueller, and then Mueller didn't work, and then it was emoluments, and then emoluments didn't work, and now it's this call I had with the Ukraine. They're going to find any little thing. They're going to find any receipt that I don't have. They're going to find out if I ripped the tag off my mattress, and they're going to try to run out of office a duly elected president, and he becomes more popular. This is what happened with Bill Clinton. And I've said that It seems like the fault lines are there that that could happen again. Now, the people that disagree with me say, hey, Clinton isn't Trump. Trump isn't Clinton. There's no reason to believe that what happened with Clinton, where he came out as most popular ever, will happen now with Trump. So, with that being said, which is it going to be? Here's what you need to watch. You got to watch to see the moderate uh, Republicans in the in of all stripes you got to watch to see whether or not they are backing the president and they call this out of line if they call this out of line then that's good for the president it's uh, uh bad for the democrats in terms of removal but here's what we know we know it's on we know the banners have been called and we know that we have a little intro here to the podcast because it'd be really silly if i release this interview without us talking about what's happening we will have much more on px3 tomorrow but until then please enjoy this interview that i did uh uh all about this will this was happened about a week ago so don't expect there to be anything about the, the news that happened now it is all about uh uh the hispanic vote in america and specifically uh the the new book that has been uh, written is about Uh, Hispanic Republicans, why, even in the age of Trump, 30% of Hispanics reliably are bedrock Republican voters. That is the interview you are about to hear now. Tomorrow, much, 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 much more on this. Politics, 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 politics.
My guest today is Geraldo Cadava. He is the author of the uh, forthcoming book, uh, coming up soon, The Hispanic Republican, and he is going to tell us all about Hispanic and Latinx voters in the United States and how they affect the elections that we care so much about. Geraldo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Justin. Oh, man. Uh, uh, this is uh, uh, something that I love. I love talking about. I'm from South Florida, so the the many varied elements of the the Hispanic and, and Latinx vote is something that I feel is, is way undercovered. It is far more diverse and interesting than I think it winds up getting in the, the, the national media. So so let's start here. The, the new book is The Hispanic Republican, obviously a title that is uh, that, that begs questions that I'm sure will be answered in the book. Uh, can you please go ahead and lay out uh, uh, the, the, the premise of, of, of the new book? Sure. Yeah, the premise of the new book is that the Republican Party over the past... 50 or 60 years, going back to the 50s or 60s, has worked hard to develop a loyal Hispanic Republican base. And the critical election came in Richard Nixon's 1972 re-election when he increased by a factor of five how he had done with Hispanic voters compared with 1968. So in 1968, he won 6% of the Hispanic vote and in 1972, he won 35% of the Hispanic vote. And he became the first Republican to win about a third of the Hispanic vote, which is a significant minority. And ever since 1972, uh, the number of or the percentage of Hispanic voters that has voted for a Republican candidate has been closer to the 35% that Nixon won than the single digit support he won in 1968. So, um, yeah, the premise is that over, over the past 50 or 60 years, a significant minority of Hispanics have become loyal Republicans. Now, this is not a story that you hear talked about a lot. <laughs> I mean, uh, certainly not a it, lot. It, is, it is something that I'm familiar with because in Miami, there is a loyal cadre of uh, uh, Hispanic, uh, Hispanic Republicans in terms of the uh, Cuban exile community. But even that is kind of shifting. So I guess my question is, based on that 1972 population and the consistency that's happened since then, is this in flux or, or is there just a 30 percent bedrock? Well, you know, some political scientists have started to call it a soft base of between 25 and 30 percent of um, Hispanics who are Republicans, and uh, the number does fluctuate. I mean, it, but it fluctuates within a narrow range of say between uh, 25 and 35 percent. The outliers to those numbers were on the low end: Gerald Ford and Robert Dole in 1976 and 1996. They won barely 20%, not even 20%, closer to 19. Um, and then George W. Bush in 2000 and 2004 uh, won 40% and then 44%. So they, those are the two outliers on the low and high ends. But, but yeah, it's been pretty consistent. Has it been consistent even as uh, there has been uh, a certainly in the mainstream conversation of, uh, of the current president's politics, an antagonistic tone toward uh, uh, certainly Mexican-Americans? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it, one of one of the starting points for me was actually trying to explain how it is that someone like Donald Trump could win almost the usual third of the Hispanic vote in 2016. He won, uh, according to exit polls, 29% of the Hispanic vote. And that was slightly better than John McCain had done in 2008 and Mitt Romney had done in 2012. So, you know, the main question was why? How, how has Republicans been able to build a loyal Hispanic base that can really withstand uh, the attacks by individual um, Republican presidential candidates like Donald Trump, whose entire campaign was uh, in some ways based on um, immigrant bashing from the time he announced in the spring of 2016 through uh, the election and then into you know his first few years in office when his immigration policies have continued to be uh, nothing short of draconian, yet 
there are still signs that um, Hispanic Republicans are at least considering sticking with him today. All right. Now, I got some theories on this, but we'll get back to that at the end. Let's flash oh, back man, a little I bit. I can't wait. I got some theories. <laughs> I got some theories. Uh, uh, let, let, let's get into the history. So let's let's flash back sure. to to the Nixon, uh, uh, you know, the, the the beginning of what is this modern sort of soft base as you described it. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. What was it in between the the Nixon election and the re-election that all of a sudden clues this Hispanic base into saying, okay, maybe my vote is better served in the Republican Party? Yeah, there there are several things going on. I mean, I think. Um, Nixon himself committed to doing better among Hispanics in 1972 than he had done in 1968. This isn't just because he liked them. Um, This is at a time when the Republican Party is just kind of hemorrhaging African-American voters, and many um, Republican strategists are saying that the Republican Party and Republican presidential candidates need to pick up that support from somewhere else. And so Hispanics become an important target for um, Nixon's reelection campaign. And the administration also begins to appointing, uh, begins to appoint several kind of high level um, Hispanics to uh, government posts. So for example, Nixon, Nixon, this is kind of funny, but I sometimes put the tongue call Nixon, Nixon, <laughs> Nixon, uh, because the name is just so, uh, it's that X, similar, man. But, the, yeah. The, the X yeah, is the crossroad. Nixican. You can go either way. He's a Nixon. That's yeah. right. So, um, Nixon appoints the first Hispanic treasurer of the United States in 1971, a woman named Romana Acosta Banuelos, and she was a kind of um, Mexican food distributor, the owner of a Mexican food distribution company in um, Southern California that still exists today. It's called Ramona's Mexican Food Products. And then she was the chairwoman and president of a of the first um, kind of Mexican-American run bank in the United States called Pan American National Bank. And so Nixon is looking for people like her to um, kind of serve as as surrogates. And so he appoints her to what is a largely ceremonial position, someone who signs the, the currency, but, you know, it's not a policy setting position or anything like that. And she goes out and stumps for Nixon and things like that. At the same time, he appoints other people like um, a man named Benjamin Fernandez, who actually in 1980 became the first Hispanic to run for president as a Republican against Ronald Reagan and George Bush. He appoints uh, Fernandez to be the head of a of an agency called the National Economic Development Agency, which helps Hispanic business owners get loans to set up their businesses. And this is part of what he calls his uh, brown capitalism initiatives. This is, you know, as Nixon sees it, economic assistance and uh, the the encouragement of free enterprise among Hispanics and African-Americans for that matter. He he has a kind of parallel initiative called the uh, black capitalism and his uh, civil rights initiatives are going to be based on economic uplift, which um, as he sees it is going to run alongside other civil rights initiatives like social and political activism, but he's going to focus instead on economic uplift. And so he creates um, he puts he creates the um, Office of Minority Business Enterprise, for example, the National Economic Development Agency that Fernandez runs and um, starts kind of doling out uh, government benefits to Hispanics. And interestingly, some of the Hispanic Republicans I've interviewed for my book didn't like Nixon because they called him the father of modern quotas because um, he was kind of Le- trying to legislate that um, Hispanics fill a certain percentage of government posts, and the whole idea of quotas and affirmative action is uh, and something that Republicans would come to stand against in later years. But um, as Hispanic Republicans see it, Nixon was actually the, the father of these quotas. So I think his appointments, um, his desire to kind of replace lost African-American votes, and at the same time, the desire by Hispanics to be recognized and to be included more in 
um, the federal government. These are all some explanations for how Nixon was able to turn it around between 68 and 72. And I guess what, what's remarkable is that that stays, right? It doesn't matter whether or not there is a a, a, a torchbearer there. Nixon uh, uh, just creates this this uh, element of the country, this element of the electorate that is passed from Republican to Republican. That's right. I mean, once once Nixon's Hispanic appointees like Benjamin Fernandez and uh, Philip Sanchez and a guy named Fernando Oaxaca, once they start working in federal government in the Nixon administration, they really see it as a marker of their inclusion. So they begin other initiatives, like they formed the Republican National Hispanic Assembly in 1974, which actually becomes uh, an official auxiliary of the Republican National Committee in um, 1974. Five, I believe. Yeah. And then they have their kind of first big gala in the bicentennial year um, in July of 1976. So, you know, this new organization, the Republican National Hispanic Assembly, is able to then, as a spin out of the Nixon administration, kind of develop the grassroots recruitment of Hispanic Republicans because it's a national organization with a national executive committee that then. Um, has state-level chapters and county-level chapters that more or less mirror congressional districts. And that's a way of kind of connecting uh, grassroots Hispanic Republican activism on the ground with a larger national organization. And I think that is how it, um, you know, becomes perpetual and how Hispanic Republicans perpetuate their movement. I mean, I think it's important to note that at the same time, the Hispanic population is kind of rapidly growing uh, from the 60s to the 70s through the 80s. So I think in 1950, Hispanics overall were just 2% of the population, but then they grow to 6% of the population, 9% of the population, etc. And they tend to be concentrated in really electoral vote-rich states like California and Texas, New York and Florida. So I think that also helps explain why parties are um, kind of increasingly eager during the 60s and 70s to um, begin making serious efforts to recruit Hispanic voters. Just to give you one quick example, I think in 1950, New York still had more, a lot more electoral votes than California or Texas, but then that balance of power in the whole country shifts and uh, very quickly, as the Sun Belt grows and as the West grows, California and Texas begin to have, um, you know, more electoral votes than New York. So the whole kind of balance of power in the country shifts into regions with a lot of Hispanics. Now, if the Republicans are going to throw themselves a party for having 30 percent of the Hispanic yeah. vote, then that by math, uh, uh, which even my my. Florida public school education can handle means that 70% is there in the democratic <laughs> side. Uh, totally. How has, has that been managed? Is that in danger? Uh, how, what is the relationship between the, the Hispanic and Latinx vote and the democratic party? Well, you know, I think there's a danger in some ways in being too complacent about how well the Democratic Party does among Hispanics. And I think in some ways, the reporting of election results has done a disservice both to um, the Democratic Party, to Hispanic voters, and to anyone trying to understand the totality of the Hispanic vote. So after recent presidential elections, the reporting on the Hispanic vote has always been that the Democratic candidate has won a landslide of the Hispanic vote um, or has crushed, the Democrat has crushed their opponent. And so, you know, oftentimes um, liberals assume that Hispanics are natural Democrats or they assume that um, Hispanics are going to support them. So, you know, the, the long-time grievance of Hispanic Republicans, and this is what began the, you know, lead to their shift to the Republican Party, is that the Democratic Party 
took their votes for granted and um, they were all talk and no action. So they made a, a, a play at the Hispanic vote, but then as soon as the election was over, they ignored them. Now, to be clear, that same criticism happens in the other direction, but um, it has been an effective argument for Hispanic Republicans to use that the Democrats are all talk and no action. And often, you know, that that has kind of been borne out across history. So Carter, for example, after his um, election in 1976, uh, Hispanic Democrats and Republicans alike, after the election, talked about how, you know, Hispanics had given Carter their support, and then uh, he did nothing for them for the first year or two of his administration. And then only late in his term did he begin to turn things around and pay attention. And unfortunately, that's kind of been a pattern across history where both parties will you know, step up their campaign efforts actually around this time in an election cycle. So like the fall of the year before the election um, to seek Hispanic votes. And then in, in the kind of period immediately preceding or immediately succeeding elections, they then ignore them. That's kind of been a, a constant critique. And we see that with uh, Obama too, where even though he won, again, the usual uh, two-thirds to 70% of the Hispanic vote, Hispanics during his terms were criticizing him for being the deporter-in-chief and et cetera. So, you know, I think I think the relationship between Hispanics and both parties has been rocky at different moments in our history. It is one of those things that you do need to have at least some contextual knowledge of because if if, let's say, theoretically, in the next election for whatever reason – the Republican candidate were to win 50% of the vote, it wouldn't be a tie. It would be a massacre for the Democrats, right? Like this is the, right. it's not all, it's not all about, Oh wow. They, 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 they beat them in, in, in the, in the counting percentages. Uh, you have to understand what your base is. And if you are, if, if Donald Trump were to get 35 or 40%, that would be a, a apocalypse for, for whoever the democratic nominee is. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I wanted to be, this kind of brings it back to your point in, um, uh, in the last question about the, the percentage and how the math doesn't add up. I mean, I, I want to be clear in saying that the goal of the Republican Party was never to win a majority of the Hispanic vote. Um, I think, you know, as the Hispanic population constitutes a greater and greater percentage of the United States as a whole, in the long run, sure, it's not going to be a winning strategy for the Republican Party to continue to only win 30% of the Hispanic vote. As the Hispanic population grows, 30% will you know, matter less and less, I guess, is the way to put it. But so far, that strategy has worked. And even though it's, you know, over the past 20, 30 years created real tensions within the Republican Party, the Republican Party has still been able to win that 30 percent. And I think, you know, that's going to be one of the real important crossroads for uh, just the Republicans, speaking only of the Republicans over the next period. You know, they're going to have to really somehow uh, reconcile this tension between uh, an, a white base and uh, a growing Hispanic population. I mean, for the Democratic Party, on the other hand, seems to increasingly be uh, becoming a kind of multicultural coalition. Now, part of the reason why uh, the the Hispanic vote is as valuable as it is is because many Hispanics uh, and Latinx voters live in very delegate rich states, uh, including probably mm -hmm. Florida being the, the the biggest in terms of the swing states. But but where would you count the 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 big states where Hispanic voters are are just massive parts of of winning those uh, electoral votes? You know, they're the biggest states. I mean, I think that, that California is still critically important because it's the most populous state and for all kinds of reasons. But, um, you know, ever since Proposition 187 in uh, 1994, that was a, a, a voter ballot initiative supported by Governor Pete Wilson and some kind of local 
to California anti-immigration activists that would have stripped um, undocumented immigrants of access to health care and public education and other social benefits and other public benefits. And um, that really alienated Mexican-Americans in the state. Uh, And, you know, that is kind of seen as being the death knell of the Republican Party in California. So at this point, I mean, um, largely, at least it's been one of the main reasons that, um, you know, analysts and strategists have pointed to as why Republicans lost California. So California is important. I think you hear a lot about uh, the purpling of Arizona and Texas and whether Democrats can make inroads in those states. I also think that um, Florida is just super interesting. I mean, not only has it been the just a swing state in general for a long time, I mean, most notably, of course, in the 2000 election and, mm-hmm. and, and then ever since, who wins Florida has been one of those kind of things that we've we've all watched over the past couple of decades. But the transformations of the Hispanic community within Florida are super interesting. And I think that there are, are some really interesting dynamics in Florida, especially between, um, you know, the Cuban exile and Cuban American population and the Puerto Rican population. So, for example, um, after Hurricane Maria, some 200,000 Puerto Ricans settled in Florida. And I think it's, you know, largely been assumed that Puerto Ricans lean Democrat, uh, certainly in comparison with uh, Cubans in South Florida, but but also just nationally in general. But I think the, the Puerto Rican population even is much more diverse than has been understood. So, you know, there are many Puerto Rican Republicans living in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., many living in uh, the area in central Florida around Orlando, many living in New York, and the populations outside of D.C. and and in Florida are uh, more conservative than Puerto Ricans in New York. And in fact, uh, another thing that I think makes Florida so interesting is that it's so close to Puerto Rico and therefore Puerto Rican um, politicians and political activists do a lot of uh, recruiting Hispanic Republicans and Hispanic Democrats in Florida from within Puerto Rico. So it's in in some ways how Puerto Ricans, since they are U.S. citizens but cannot vote in uh, presidential elections, part of how they exert their political influence, even though they can't vote, is by campaigning for Democratic and Republican candidates in States like Florida, which have a lot of Puerto Ricans, so they have a, a great influence with Puerto Rican voters in states like Florida and New York. And you know, you can take as an example a politician like Rick Scott, who, after Hurricane Maria, visited the island of Puerto Rico eight times. Why did he do that? I mean, yeah. that's that's not the territory that he represents. Uh, he's not the governor of Puerto Rico, but he visited Puerto Rico eight times after Hurricane Maria. And as a result, he won 45% of the Hispanic vote when he became Senator Rick Scott in the November 2018 midterm. So I think Florida is really interesting. And, you know, I think it has all kinds of significance to Donald Trump because of Mar-a-Lago, all kinds of reasons. Um, but I think it's also going to be really interesting to watch how Rick Scott, who has positioned himself as a real champion for Hispanics in Florida, kind of negotiates campaigning for Donald Trump, et cetera. So I think Florida is another really interesting to watch. I would I would um, kind of look at Arizona, Texas, Florida, California, still a behemoth. But um, I think a lot of other states, Hispanics are becoming more influential where um, you've seen states like Colorado and Virginia becoming more purple in the past couple election cycles. And after Barack Obama won re-election in 2012, for example, a lot of his success in kind of increasingly swingy states like Colorado and Virginia was attributed to his success among Hispanics. 
Let me ask you about this election uh, uh, on the Democratic side before I get into my my my, my Trump uh, uh, theories here. Uh, we, yeah, we, yeah. We've watched. Out on me with I will not. I will not. I guarantee. Op will deliver on this. So uh, <laughs> there. Uh, on on the Democratic side, you have two African American candidates that are running. That if you look at the polling, do not enjoy the lion's share or even really a a relevant statistical stakehold of the African-American vote. Uh, speaking of Kamala Harris yeah. and Cory Booker, there is a Hispanic American who, or, who is running for president in Julian Castro. How have we seen him, uh, his, his traction amongst uh, Hispanic and Latinx voters? You know, I don't know a whole lot about this in a kind of empirical sense. I, know about it a little bit from the conversations I've been having recently with Hispanic Republicans. One of the things I always ask them is how, you know, what they think of Julian Castro. And he's certainly, well, in Texas, you know, all of the Mexican-Americans I talk to, the first thing they talk about when they talk about Julian Castro is his mom and his family and his brother. They've been a kind of deeply rooted Mexican-American family in San Antonio, for a long time, I mean, uh, for a long time. So uh, I, there's there's definitely excitement about the fact that there is a Hispanic candidate running for president. But, um, you know, interestingly, I don't think a kind of shared ethnicity with the candidate is the most important consideration um, for Hispanics. It hasn't been. I mean, if you look at the 1980 election I was talking about with uh, Ben Fernandez, his whole electoral strategy was based on winning the support of Hispanics at first in Puerto Rico. So 1980, it was the first ever um, Puerto Rican primary on the island. So Mm -hmm. the first election in which Puerto Ricans participated in the primary campaigns, they still couldn't vote in presidential elections, but they were allowed to participate in the primary process and send delegates to the convention, et cetera. And Fernandez's whole electoral strategy was based on first winning the Puerto Rico primary and really ignoring Iowa and New Hampshire and not campaigning there. So kind of camping out in Puerto Rico to win the Puerto Rican primary. And then his idea was that um, you know, people across the country would take notice. Who's this guy who won Puerto Rico's 14 delegates? That failed miserably for all kinds of reasons <laughs> because he had been ignoring. Yeah, uh, never, Iowa never, answer, never a smart idea. That that strategy. Never to, a smart idea. Yeah. But then he also just came in third place in Puerto Rico. George Bush won 60 percent of Puerto Rico. Howard Baker, the Democrat, uh, or I'm sorry, the. the uh, Republican who had been on the um, Senate Watergate committee, he uh, did better than Ben Fernandez. I think Ben Fernandez won something like 2% of the vote in Puerto Rico and 25,000 votes nationally after that. He actually did better in places like uh, Kentucky than he did in uh, Puerto Rico. So that I just bring that up as an example of how a shared ethnicity with the candidate doesn't always mean that uh, they will support that person. So I also think there's some, you know, some literature about um, the African-American vote that says that African-Americans are kind of conservative about who their selection will be until there's a clear front runner and then they will shift their support to yeah. that person. So, you know, there's been a lot of, of noise about how people like, uh, well, I, I guess I shouldn't dismiss it as noise. I'm sure there's some truth to it, but people like um, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders haven't gained much traction among African-Americans and Joe Biden is, um, you know, the front runner yeah. and among African-Americans and in the race in generally. And I think, you know, one theory is that um, African-Americans, and maybe this is true of Hispanics as well, are going to kind of wait until, wait a little more until things shake out a little bit more, and then we'll throw their weight behind um, behind whoever the front runner becomes. And I think things are just kind of early right now. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I myself am kind of just uh, <laughs> waiting to see what happens, you know? I mean, I, sure. I don't know that there's 
there's clear a, a clear signal yet of which way it's going to go. But I think you know things will start to sort themselves out in January, February, and March. Yeah, you know, I I, I generally subscribe to the idea that beyond even race, but also with other minority groups, including you know uh, uh, gender identity and and sexuality and stuff like that, that yeah. there there's a lot of pragmatism. And and there was a bit of like yeah. a funhouse mirror idea that when Obama got elected, that it was like, oh, well, Obama owned the black vote because he was black. And it's like, well, Obama was also kind of a transcendent politician. And I think that it was mm-hmm. very good for him that he was right. the first. And then the, 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 the fact that he was also a black guy was just extra excitement. You know, that is that is right. generational right. lockdown. Now you're a hero. But it doesn't you don't earn it all just because there is a, a connection either on race or sexuality or gender identity or something like that. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think Hispanics like African-Americans, like women or the LGBTQ community, I mean, they're not single issue voters. You know? Indeed. Which brings me to my theories, Geraldo. All right. Tell me. Yeah, tell Number me. one, let's start there. That, that uh, 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 Hispanics and Latinx voters are not a monolith. There is no one issue that moves all of them. They are a rapidly evolving and expanding community that has many, many different interests. But here's one thing that I do suspect moves the needle, and this does not necessarily have to do with Trump, although Trump certainly courted the vote. This is probably more of a general Republican thing, is by the polls, religious voters tend to flock to the Republican Party, and religion does play, at least in my own uh, experience, a significant uh, portion of uh, uh, Hispanic voters' lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's a theory. Sure. I, I think, uh, you know, often when I talk to people about my project, um, my book, the, the Hispanic Republican, the first question I get is like, oh, it's got to be about Catholicism or, oh, it's got to be about the Cuban exile community. And um, I think, you know, my answer to that has become like, yes, but um, I, I think that that's there. And, and many of the people that I study do narrate their evolution as conservatives, um, as tied to their religious identity, their, their kind of traditional Catholicism. Um, I could tell you many stories about that, but I think to just to clearly answer the question, I think that religion is, is more complicated than it seems, though, because um, I think Catholicism, for example, uh, cuts in different ways. I mean, there's there's a religious traditionalism that is about marriage and abortion and family yeah. and things like that. But then there's also a kind of social justice activism among Catholics. Uh, we can see that in the kind of liberation theology movements that were deeply influential in Latin America and um, have translated over to the United States as well. So I think, you know, yeah, I think, re- and in the, both cases, religion and Catholicism are important, but they don't necessarily lead to conservatism, no. and Republican identity. And then, likewise, I mean, another kind of complicating factor with religion is that the the largest number of Hispanics is still Catholic, but the fastest growing religions among Catholics. Um, is evangelical Christianity and Protestantism and Pentecostalism and other kind of Christian sects, which are more conservative than uh, Catholicism, I think. And then finally, the last thing about religion that I'll say is that political scientists have actually found that even though Hispanics are more religious than other groups of Americans, and they measure this by church attendance, they don't necessarily vote based on their religion. So it's part of their identity, but it's not how they participate politically. So I think these are all complicated issues, but I, for myself, in response to your question, would acknowledge (laughs) religion as an important issue, but I think that uh, it's not the thing that I would want to hang their conservative identity on. Certainly, certainly. So that's uh, just one, uh, just an element, right? Just, just trying to build the coalition to get to 30%, yeah, right? Yeah, so, totally, totally. But though, you know, then there are also other things though. I, I think, you know, when I was studying this, I think individual issues like religion are important, but then 
What do you do also with the fact that, you know, a large percentage of Hispanic youth go into the military and then yeah. military kind of become the military becomes another kind of vehicle for their conservatism? Or um, what do you do with like anti-communism and anti-radicalism towards Latin America over a long period of time. I mean, there were the, the Cuban exiles who were against Castro in the 60s. They're still talking about, you know, the threats of socialism, and they'll draw straight lines from Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela <laughs> to AOC in Congress, right? The oh. Democratic Socialists in Congress. And they see both Venezuela and AOC as kind of equal, equal threats to the United States. And that also isn't necessarily religiously motivated. <laughs> no, absolutely so, not. And that would be another like element of it. Complicated thing. I've been to Calle Ocho. I know, I know, I know. It, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah, well familiar man. with the argument, certainly. Yeah. Uh, uh, the other element here is, is, and this is specific to Trump, is yeah. that, and this is where I, I do get frustrated by the national conversation about the Hispanic vote, capital H, writ large, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And specifically when, during the 2016 election, is the confusion that, number one, that certainly there is a, a fast-rising majority of the vote that is Mexican, but it is not universally Mexican. And anybody who uh, can understand that two uh, college, college fan bases in Alabama can have very uh, uh, tremendous anger toward each other in uh, Alabama and Auburn can also understand that in the tremendously packed-in elements of Central and South America that there are often mm -hmm. rivalries and bad feelings yeah. and out-and-out -out biases. Combine that with the idea that while there is certainly a gigantic amount of, like, all Americans who immigrated, and for uh, Hispanic Americans, it's often more recent than maybe some of the uh, communities in the, in the Northeast with the Irish and stuff like that, but there are many folks who have, uh, in the Hispanic community that I've spoken with, that don't have the idea that that uh, uh, that immigration should be lessened, right? That that illegal immigration yeah. should be something that we should encourage. They they rather believe mm -hmm. that there's different ways that that they got here. They had to struggle. Why shouldn't other people? So I think that this is a, yeah. a way more complicated issue than I think people give it credit for. I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, but I think that you know, from the perspective of parties and their desires to build coalitions of voters. I think parties are trying to figure out how to forge connections among their various interest groups, stakeholders, I guess we would call yeah. them today. But, you know, and vis-a-vis -vis Hispanics, what does that mean? I mean, you have the Hispanic strategists uh, who are Republicans that I'm writing about struggling over the course of several decades to figure out what and to, and to articulate, to be able to articulate what the core of Hispanic identity means, things like, um, you know, a strong work ethic or uh, family values or pull yourself up by the bootstraps and desire for um, upward mobility or loyalty to the United States and patriotism, all these things. They're, they're struggling to come up with a language for what unifies all Hispanic voters, but that's because they're trying to build coalitions among different Hispanic groups in order to convince them to vote uh, in the case of the people I'm writing about for the Republican Party. And, you know, when I've talked to Hispanic Republicans, at least, about you know, when I talk to Puerto Rican Republicans about how they feel about, um, you know, the undocumented immigration issue or uh, build the wall or whatever, when I talk to Mexican-American Republicans about how they feel about the Puerto Rican statehood issue or, um, you know, the issue of anti-communism in southern Florida, I, I've kind of come to um, conclude that the various Hispanic Republican groups, the different nationality groups are happy to go along with the issues that other groups of um, Hispanic Republicans tend to support unless they directly <laughs> conflict with their interests. Yeah. So it's not that they it's not that they set out to um, 
be rivals and that Mexican-Americans are, you know, they care about border issues and trade with Mexico and Puerto Ricans don't care about that issue at all. I think they're Puerto Ricans are happy to go along with whatever Mexican-American Republicans feel about the border and trade unless it directly conflicts with their interests. To give you one example of that, um, in the debates around NAFTA in uh, the 1990s, Mexican-American Republicans, by and large, were kind of excited about NAFTA because they thought it would kind of increase economic opportunities, increase trade between the United States and Mexico. But Cubans and Puerto Ricans on that issue were not excited because uh, at the time, Mexico was doing, uh, in in dollar amount terms, an increasing amount of business with Cuba. And as long as Mexico was doing business with Cuba, Cuban exiles and Cuban Americans in Florida wanted nothing to do with Mexico. So they opposed NAFTA on those grounds. Similarly, there's a, a law called, I think it's like Law 936 or something like that. It's the the law in Puerto Rico that um, grants lots of tax exemptions to American companies that that don't have to pay certain kinds of taxes. And they didn't support NAFTA because they thought that a kind of free trade bill with Mexico would kind of cut into their free trade uh, initiatives in Puerto Rico. So in that instance, Mexican-Americans, Puerto Ricans and Cubans were on different on a different page. But uh, by and large, you know, the, the main issue for Puerto Ricans has always been the territorial status of the island and Republicans, uh, by and large, favor statehood or um, Puerto Rico becoming the 51st state. Cubans have always kind of been engaged with Cuban politics. Mexican-Americans have always been engaged with kind of border and immigration and, and trade policies between the United States and Mexico. So they do have their kind of own pet interests. Um, but they and, and and each of those groups, I think, I, I think I can say this now after doing some research about it, it, each of those groups is happy to go along with the issues of the other unless it directly conflicts with their own. All right. You have been awesome. This has been an amazing interview. So I'm going to ask you one more question that might be a little loaded, Please. but, but uh, just give me one name of all the conversations that you've had with uh, Hispanic American uh, political operatives and and or, or Hispanic Republican uh, operatives and voters, is there one of the 2020 candidates that they would be the most excited to vote against? Is there one big Hispanics? Yes, Hispanic Republicans. Oh, you mean Hispanic Republicans? Hispanic oh, Republicans. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think. Uh, I mean, I think that all of the ones that I've talked to, um, you know would be most eager to vote against either Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders because they just kind of all of the the um, conversation about them as, as socialists and the, the whatever the modern day equivalent of the red scare would be has been very effective for um, Hispanics. So I think that they, they would be very eager to cast their votes against uh, either of them. Now, and, and, you know, likewise, they've told me, and I don't necessarily know if this is a ringing endorsement of Joe Biden, but they've told me, man, I don't know if you can tell, but my, my voice still sometimes cracks like a teenager. But no, it's fine. anyway, um, <laughs> uh, in any event, they've, you know, made the kind of poor joke that they can abide by Biden. And, uh, and you know, I don't know if that's a ringing endorsement of Joe Biden, that he would be the favored candidate of Hispanic Republicans. So, um, yeah, you know, I think we'll see how it plays out. But I think right now, um, you know, right now, I think they would be eager to vote against Sanders and Warren and would most support Joe Biden. And and let me be clear and say that does not at all mean that I think they will support Joe Biden. I think the conversation that most Hispanic Republicans are having with themselves right now is whether they can support Donald Trump. Yeah. Given well, all that he's done. You know, and that's the thing is is like we talk about with the 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 seventy percent and thirty percent. It's not necessarily whether or not you win the most, right? It's whether or not mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. depress turnout for people that were likely to vote for the other guy right. and increase and convert whoever you can to vote for your guy. That's uh, right. That's right. I you know I talked to one guy a Puerto Rican Republican who's voted for Republicans since the 
70s at least. And he was describing this just as a real dilemma and was saying that, you know, it's just not in his nature to vote for a Democrat. So while he's wrestling with whether he'll be able to support Donald Trump or not, and for the moment he says that he can't, uh, whether he votes for Donald Trump or not, he just can't bring himself to vote for a Democrat. And I suspect that there, I suspect that that is pretty widespread among Hispanic Republicans right now, but there's still a year left of campaigning. Yeah. And I guess that would that would be the thing is that if you had something that would resemble uh, uh, or at least become a national conversation of are we ready for socialism in America and with Bernie, it's a part of the brand, uh, then that might mm-hmm. be the, the the get out of jail free card, uh, the, 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 right. the indulgence to say, all right, well, I'll vote for Trump, but only because I don't like these guys. All right. Right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, my guest uh, uh, has been Geraldo. Cadaver, uh, thank you so much. Again, your book comes out uh, uh, next year? Yeah, May 2020. Echo, uh, an imprint of HarperCollins, is publishing it. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, uh, we should all go, and as soon as, uh, as soon as it goes for pre-order, let's make sure that we go out and get it, because this has been a fantastic interview. Thank you so much, uh, Geraldo, for joining us. Thank you, Justin. Take care. Have a good day. You too.
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>